Thanks, Brett. And uh, thank you also for your leadership this morning. If you weren't here at 9 a.m., each fifth Sunday we have um, a Missions Emphasis Sunday, and it was really encouraging to hear reports um, from a variety of sources and um, a really encouraging testimony as well. Thankful for the missions team and all their labors in that regard. So um, we are in a series through the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to turn to chapter 3, we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4 this morning. So uh, it's a tall order, but I think God willing we can make it through chapters 3 and 4. So while you're turning there, um, I've referenced Psalm 127 a couple times, as we've done a couple weeks here in Nehemiah, two weeks, chapter 1 and chapter 2, because there's a lot of intersection with those themes and the theme, themes of this book. So Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So, just a quick question to get us thinking as we head into Nehemiah 3 and 4. Is Psalm 127, if you stop and think about it, is that a demotivator? to doing the work of building and protecting? Because unless the Lord builds the house, you're just wasting your time. In vain is your building work. Unless the Lord watches over the city, you can stay up all night, and it's all in vain. Should we just sleep in? I mean, is that what this passage is all about? In vain that you rise up early. Maybe we want to say amen to that and have some justification for it because we're going to bed too late and getting up too early. So do we just sit on our hands until God does it? I mean, what does this passage mean? How does that get worked out in our lives? And I think we can always wrestle in different ways and at different times with the tension between Dependence on God and action, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And there's a lot of help in the book of Nehemiah for us. So, a little quick review. Um, book of Nehemiah has a historical setting, and if you don't have a sense of what's going on, it's maybe hard to understand the story. So, in about 586 B.C., southern Israel, Judah, had been rebellious, idolatrous, sticking their fingers in their ears to God and his prophets for years and years and years and years and years. And finally, God had to judge them, and he used the Babylonians to do so. And so Jerusalem was just, you know, raised, just brought to the ground, burned. And most of the people were either killed or taken off into exile. So, for instance, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys ended up where they did in Babylon because of the exile, okay? So in 536, so you can see about, what is that, um, 50 years later, Cyrus, 539, Cyrus came into power, the Persian king, the Persians beat the Babylonians, they became the world power, and Cyrus was raised up 
And he said, okay, you Jews can go home, and I'll even help rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel led a group of people back to Jerusalem, something eight to 800 to 1,000 miles away from um, where they were to where they were going to be there in Jerusalem. And so in 516, the temple's rebuilt. That's great, but much work remained to be done. Another 50 years later, Ezra comes along. So the book of Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, um, they kind of are, uh, they go together. And so Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. So Ezra led another wave of returnees, and he was aiming his focus at reformation among the people of God, a return to the word of God. And then it's just kind of ebb and flow. 20 years later, Nehemiah, He's in Persia. He's the cupbearer of the king, and he hears a report from his brothers that come and give this report of just the terrible situation, the disrepair that the city's in, and he's crushed, and he spends four months fasting and praying, and he makes some plans, and then he speaks to Artaxerxes, the king, taking his life in his hands, doing so, and asks that the king would send him back to rebuild the wall and... Um, establish the city. So, he goes to Jerusalem, assesses things, and then he rallies the people. Look at chapter 2. We looked at this last week. Verses 17 and 18. Then I, Nehemiah speaking, said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, because the king was behind um, Nehemiah to do this, and even um, material provisions to make it happen. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so now it's time to get to work, which is what we find in chapter 3. So, um, again, just get into the shoes of these people, the sandals of these people, if you don't have a wall around your city at the time and you've got some unfriendly neighbors, that's a big problem. Your city's actually never going to really be established because not very many people are going to want to live inside the wall that's not there because there's no protection. There's no um, defense system. And so the wall was vital to the flourishing of the city as a whole. So um, it's a really key effort. So... Um, for us, you know, this might seem like it's a, f- a long way from where we live, and it is, but big picture, our orientation here, there is a message in this book and in these chapters for us. So Nehemiah was focused on reformation, rebuilding, reforming the people of God and rebuilding the city of God. God called him to do that, enabled him to do that. His hand was on Nehemiah. This was worthy work. And so even though there were challenges and opposition, it was worthy work, and so the people worked. And for us, the city of God is the people of God. Okay, So God is with us and for us, and so even if we are opposed, even if we're weary and it seems impossible, we can and must continue to do God's work. And we should do it in his strength, in his way, for his glory and the good of his present and future people. So this isn't just a history lesson. It's not just about how they responded. 
It's also how we are responding, how we will respond as far as the work of God in our generation and our part to play in that. All right, so let's dive into chapter 3. Let me pray again briefly here before we do so. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that he said, it is finished. And everything that you sent him to do, he willingly completed. So we thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That even though by nature we are your enemies, shaking our fist in your face, wanting to be our own masters, wanting to go our own way, wanting to determine for ourselves what is good, just like our first parents. We thank you that in your mercy and your grace, in your love, you sent Jesus to make your enemies your friends, to reconcile us to yourself through the blood of the cross. We thank you that that work is finished We thank you that you, who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And we thank you that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, wanting to grow in Christ and become more like him and be used by him, we thank you that that you are at work, both to will and to work at the level of our willing and at the level of working out those desires. You are at work for your good pleasure. So we praise you. You are the great worker in this universe, and certainly, unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And unless you watch over the city, those who watch over, watch over in vain. So Lord, We come to you. We need your help. We need your help right now. Easy to be distracted by a million things. Would you give us attentiveness to what you have to say to us through your word? Would you please help me to make this text clear and apply it faithfully? And Lord, would you please do your work in us so that you can do your work through us? We need your grace. We need your help. We need revival and renewal and encouragement and strength and motivation and help and protection. We thank you that you know everything that each and every one of us needs and you can mediate that grace and help to us this morning on the spot, by your spirit, through your word. So come now and do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, there's an outline. Follow along on the screens. Um, you can also pull up the outline, or maybe you grabbed a copy. Or if you want to run out and grab a copy of the, of the uh, notes, you're welcome to do that too. So the first point is chapter 3. We're going to hit chapter 3 
fairly quickly, at least proportionally. Um, and we're not going to read through the whole of the chapter. Um, I thought that would be cruel if I were to call someone up like Tracy and say, hey, okay, scripture reading this Sunday is Nehemiah 3 with all those names. Um, so didn't do that. And certainly Psalm 37 is a beautiful complimentary passage to our section here. Um, so all scripture is breathed out by God, right? Second Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, and profitable. But not all scripture is equally profitable. I don't think that's a blasphemous statement. You know, I think we could probably say that Romans 8 is more profitable than Nehemiah 3. You could just be honest about that. There's a lot of names, a lot of just, you know, building this, that, and the other part of the, of the wall. So chapters like chapter 3 in the Bible can challenge us to find value and relevance. Like, so what? What does this mean for us? We'd be tempted maybe to skip this chapter. But it's actually got some important and very helpful points to make. So notice where it starts. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, so the work is going to get started here. Nehemiah's leading the charge, and the first person we read about getting busy on the wall, getting the work done, is Eliashib, the high priest. He rose up, and with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. So what you have in this chapter is people of high position, people of low position working on the wall, leaders and people. It starts with the high priest, and there is a consecration of the work of the wall. So I don't think the point of this mention of consecration is only tied to the work done by the priest's hands. You know, their work is holy work. Everybody else that worked on the wall, well, you know, we're glad you did it, but it's, it's not a holy portion of the wall. So certainly their work was holy work, and it's likely that the sheep gate was named such because the sheep for sacrifices were herded in through those gates because the temple was really near to that spot in the wall. If you were to picture, sorry, I should have made a picture, but if you were to picture the city of Jerusalem, it starts up here in the northeast corner where the Sheep Gate is, and the temple is up here in the top right-hand corner. So, not just the priest's work is consecrated and holy. If you fast forward to the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 27, we find this. Once the wall is completely done, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication of the wall with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the priests, verse 30, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people, consecrated, and the gates, and the wall. Nehemiah had, you know, brought these leaders up on the wall, walls wide enough for people to walk on, and had two choirs singing, and they're giving thanks up and down the wall. In chapter 12, verse 43, it reads, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with, with, rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far and away. So the work on the wall started with consecration, the priests, 3-1, and it ended with consecration. All of the work was holy, 
It was prompted and enabled by God. It was all devoted to God. It was done in his name for his glory and for the good of his people. Okay? So sweating away at stone and mortar doesn't seem very spiritual, but each and every bit of that work served to strengthen the city of God and it was holy work. So if we were to contemporize that, I mean, we could start by going to the New Testament in Acts 6. I'm sure that managing and responding to the complaints, this early church, and there were complaints that certain widows were being neglect, neglected in the daily provision. I'm sure that kind of work didn't always feel very spiritual. You know, the apostles are preaching the gospel and doing all this stuff. Maybe that's more important. No, this was vital work, and it was prompted by God. So I think of our body. Jean Lee, and I should probably hate me for doing this, but Jean Lee and her faithful treasurer work. Maybe it doesn't seem like spiritual work, oftentimes, but it's massively important for the good of this body. Matthew Ward as the finance officer, his work, massively important for us. For instance, recently, we've been working on reviewing our counting procedures so that we follow best practices. We do these kinds of things, okay? Listen, this is spiritual work. This is really important. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul has this really long section on giving and takes care with the collection, getting it from point A to point B, because he knows that reputations are on the line. And so look at 2 Corinthians 8.20. We take this course, we take care with how we're going to transport this money so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us from, you know, collected from the churches in Asia Minor and given to the poor Christians in Judah, Judea. So we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So stuff like counting procedures is spiritual work, okay? Probably seems like block and mortar, you know? but it's really important. It matters. Pastor Tyler putting a child protection policy in place and all of our children's ministry workers being careful to honor those guidelines, that's actually protecting the people of God, especially the little ones, vulnerable ones. That's spiritual work. Glenn Hoffeiser, the fourth, and Rudy Rodriguez and Glenn the third taking care of the lawn and the grounds. That's that's something you can do as worship. All of life is worship. And if this place looked like a jungle, you know, people are going to drive by or they're going to be like, what is wrong with these people? Tom Hughes working diligently to oversee the maintenance of the facility as the deacon overseeing our facility. Or Shannon Barisa working faithfully to coordinate our housing ministry. If you don't know, if you're newer or vis visiting with us, that house and the house over there are ministry houses, and we've been able to use those in a bunch of ways, hundreds of ways, over many years. But that takes some pretty practical, like, brass tax labor to make it happen. So we're thankful for folks that do that kind of work. All of this work is holy work. It's all enabled by God, it's devoted to God, and it's for his people, done in his name for his people. Um, 
And just if you weren't here at 9 a.m., uh, one of the things that Brett mentioned in an update, and then Miriam um, spoke to it a bit after that, um, one of our missions partners in France, the Campbells, their two oldest girls are in the States now going to college, and it's tough. You know, it's hard to be, you know, thousands of miles away from your family. And so the missions team is putting together care packages for those girls. How cool is that? So that's really practical work. You can go to, the, go to the store, go to Target, and get, you know, stuff. Like, this is spiritual, holy work because it's for the good of these people that we love. So, all right. So in Nehemiah 3, the work starts, like I said, northeast corner, near the temple, at the Sheep Gate. And if you fast forward to the end of chapter 3, if you look down at verse 34, go ahead and scan your eyes down there. Where does the wall work end? At the Sheep Gate. So in other words, we're going counterclockwise. Yeah, just trust me on that. <laughs> These locations, some of them are identifiable, some of them aren't. Um, you know, there's archaeology and all that. But they go all the way around and end back at the Sheep Gate, where it began. So the whole chapter is a testimony of the work of God to give the people of God a mind and a heart to work. Except for one conspicuous and we could say jarring or shameful exception. In verse 5, did you, well, if you read ahead, um, you may have noticed it. Look at verse 5. So it's individuals and groups, you know, doing this section and that section and this section and that section. Um, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So their nobles, apparently, maybe they resented Nehemiah's leadership. Who's this guy coming in here and telling us what to do? Felt like this work was beneath them. They wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord, their Lord. Um, there's a little bit of question, that last phrase. The word is actually plural, Lord. It's Lord's. So some translations say something like they wouldn't stoop to serve their lords or their supervisors. Like, we're not going to subject ourselves to these foremen, you know, doing this work on the wall. That's possible. The ESV translation is also possible because the Lord in the plural can be a plural of majesty, okay? So referring to God, Adonai, okay? So for instance, the word is plural in Nehemiah 8.10. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has Nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Plural. So either way, <laughs> this work is God's work. So to refuse, to stoop, to do it, is to not only dishonor supervisors or lords, but ultimately it's a dishonor to the Lord. So you end up ultimately in the same place. So as you work your way through this chapter, you see a number of different things, groups at work, individuals, families at work. You see some people repairing near where they live. Okay, look at verses 22 and 23. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. And after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And then in other places, you see people going wherever the help was needed. So 
Again, think about how ministry, the work, goes. Sometimes, like let's take children's ministry as an example, you have kids. If you're, if you're a parent and you've got kids, it makes all the sense in the world to serve where you have a need. So you need those people to care for your kids, and so you're also, you've got skin in the game, you're going to serve in the children's ministry as well because you know how important it is for our kids to be taken care of and um, taught God's Word. But also, sometimes it's really helpful to have people come from a different place, right? Empty nesters or single serving in the children's ministry because there's need there. Or you can think about it this way. Those of you who served at our fall festival, you know, it's near, but also Epiphany had the Good in the Hood Day, and you go and serve there because there's a need. So some work nearby, some work wherever there's a need. We also see male and female at work here. Um, look at verse 12, and you'll see Shalom, the son of Halohesh, raising some strong daughters. And I think it's commendable. I think that's maybe why it was included. So if you look at verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. And then certainly this work was more in the wheelhouse for some than for others. Um, if you look at verse 8, it says next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So perfumers and goldsmiths, probably not used to slinging mortar and lugging rocks around, but they got involved in the work because there was a need. Not their wheelhouse, out of their area of expertise, but they jumped in anyway to meet the need for the sake of the cause. So I think the parallels, if you look at the chapter as a whole, the parallels for us would be the work of the church is every member ministry. Everybody getting their hands dirty. We all have a part to play. So much more can be done when we all pitch in together. We don't just leave it to the professionals. So this was building up the wall for the protection of the city of God because only if that protection was there would the city begin to grow and flourish if the perimeter and the defenses were in place. So for us, we are the church. And the church is the city of God. We're called to be a city on a hill. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5? And Jesus said, he promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, how does that building happen? How does the building of the church happen? Well, consider 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The image here is the building of the temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone. He was rejected, right, by the Pharisees, and, and he was crucified, but the stone that was rejected became the cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then we, like living stones, are built up 
to, to make an, a holy house, a living temple. We are where God's presence resides in this world. He dwells within us individually as Christians and corporately as his church, his people. Well, well how does that happen? How do the living stones get built up? Every member ministry. Look at Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. We looked at this um, recently. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the responsibility for the building up of the body is it belongs to every part of the body. So no matter what your gift is, no matter what your wiring is, you might feel like you're so limited or whatever, your part matters. We all have a part to play in the building up of the body when each part is working properly, as each part does its work. So, just simply, are you doing your part? None of us can do everything, but we all have been given giftedness and time and talent and treasure and so forth to do God's work. So, if you're not sure, ask God what part he would have you play. Talk to a leader of a particular ministry if you'd like to help. All right? So, let's move on now to chapter 4. So, if you're doing the work of God, building up the people of God, the city of God, you can expect trouble. Satan's not going to take it lying down if we're actually busy with this work, if it matters to us and we're um, doing our part, and he is going to mobilize the enemies of God to oppose us. So second point, opposition, look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now, when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? It's likely that there was um, a sentiment at the time that burned stones were believed to be cursed. So you're going to you know, build this cursed city with cursed stones? Like, you guys are pathetic. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. It's going to be so weak and pathetic, a fox could knock it over. So back in chapter 2, verse 20, in fact, you can turn back there, Nehemiah, this isn't the first time he's been mocked and scoffed at. In 2.20, then I replied to them, so, so they, uh, in verse 19, jeered at us, despised us, saying, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. So back there, he answered the scoffers. He answered the, the mocking and the taunts. Here he's silent toward them, and he just prays instead. Why the difference? Like, 
how do you know when and how to respond? Um, have you ever run across Proverbs 26, 4 and 5? Look at these verses side by side. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So the first time, Nehemiah did the second thing. The second time, Nehemiah did the first thing. And we need wisdom to know which time it is, right? But you can see the wisdom of both of those things guiding us and God guiding us to know which to do in which instance, okay? So we also see opposition in verses 7 and 8. So there's opposition in 1 to 3, opposition again here in 7 to 8. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So Sambalot is from the north, Samaria. Tobiah is from the east. Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, we read about him in chapter 2, verse 19. The Arabs were on the south. The Ammonites, Tobiah is an Ammonite, um, the east again, and the Ashdodites were on the west, I should say east, west from your vantage point, right? So basically, enemies on all sides. That's what's going on here. And they hear that things are moving on, moving forward, and they are not happy. And they plot, not just, they're not just jeering now, now they're plotting to come and fight and cause confusion. So it's escalating from the words to plots to come, fight, and cause confusion. And then finally in verse 11, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So it escalates to death threats. So here we have opposition toward the people of God as they go about the work of God. This is an example of the nations raging. You know, whether it's Psalm 46 or Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. This kind of thing is going to happen. It's happened before to the people of God. It will happen again. It actually happens in every generation. Jesus warned his disciples, and he's warning us. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So I think of a teenager or a college student, unashamed or at least not wanting to be ashamed and being open with their faith in high school or at UD or, you know, Westchester or wherever. How often will convictions, even lovingly, graciously held, kindness, love towards students that maybe are on the outside of the circle that some people don't like and they like to make fun of them, 
They ridicule them or bully them, and this Christian is kind to them. Oftentimes, Christ-likeness kicks up opposition because when we are reflecting Christ in our world, it will both repel and attract. That happened with Jesus. It happened with the apostles. It'll happen with us as well. And we need to be prepared for that. We don't delight in the fact that it kicks up opposition, but we can't, like, you know, put our finger to the wind and just make sure we keep everybody happy to be faithful to our master. So listen, it doesn't matter how tactful and nuanced you are. And I'm all for graciousness in speech, just like Paul told us, and respectfulness in speech, just like Apostle Paul writes, and tact, and kindness, and nuance, because This world's complicated, and the Bible is not simplistic. But no matter how tactful and nuanced you are, the world is not going to always love you. So I think at our moment in time, in our culture, this is an important example to use, okay? Because we're talking about the protection of the city with the wall, okay? So the church and protecting the church here. Important example we need to consider. The church has not had the best track record of loving the LGBTQ community. There are plenty of stereotypes we need to shed, okay? Because sometimes when people think of evangelicals, they think of the sandwich board with God hates fags or something like that on it. I don't think any of us would recommend that, right? But still, that's sometimes what's associated. So the church has often treated homosexuals or those struggling with sexual identity as untouchable. Christians have also oftentimes led with morality rather than with the mercy and grace of Christ. So just a little, a little sidebar here so you hear what I'm saying. If I'm, I used to work at this furniture company and every day I was praying because I'm going to be talking to these guys. I'm riding in the truck for 45 minutes so we get to the job and then do the job. And I'm praying that the Lord would guide those conversations and help me share the gospel with these guys and love them and all that. Um, and, you know, they found out I was Christian and I'm going to seminary and whatever. And they would swear around me and then they'd apologize. Like, dude, just be yourself. It's fine. Do they need to clean up their mouth? Is that what they need? No, they need to come to Jesus. Jesus will take care of their mouth, right? So I don't need to lead with morality like, tsk, tsk, you better clean up your mouth. You're offending me. You need Jesus. So same thing with LGBTQ community. So we need to do a whole lot better to love sinners of all sorts and stripes. Everyone needs the mercy and grace of Jesus. And the church should be a safe place for sinners. Okay, all sinners welcome. Should be the the banner over the entrance to the church. But that doesn't mean that sexual morality doesn't matter to God. He loves us too much to leave us where we are when we come to him. So you don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath, but when 
the Lord starts a good work, things change. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 is hugely important. Pay attention to these words. It's, it's vital that we have convictions about this in our generation and cultural moment. So Paul writes, and this is in the context of a situation that was just gross immorality in the Corinthian church and nobody's doing anything about it. Inside the church. So Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, at the same time, that says all kinds of sinners are welcome here. Like, anybody can come in here. But when you encounter Jesus, regardless of what your issues are, because we're all bent and broken, he's going to wash and sanctify and change us. Okay, it doesn't all happen all at once, does it? But there is a decisive change. So it's not okay, listen, for a man who is cheating on his wife to continue as a member in good standing in the church of Jesus Christ. So if we were to say, God loves everyone, you know, we're all messy. Doesn't matter. You, you go, whoop, whoop, that's not okay. Right? Nor adulterers. So yes, we are all messy. And precisely because God loves us, he calls us to repent and turn from our sin and cling to Jesus. So can a true Christian commit adultery? Yes. Can a true Christian commit adultery or be a serial adulterer and think he need not repent? No. Can a true Christian struggle with lust and porn? Yes. Can a true Christian secretly be enslaved to lust and porn and never, hear that word, never be willing to come clean and walk in the light? No. So can a true Christian commit or struggle with homosexual sin or struggle with the sex God assigned him or her at birth? Yes. Can a true Christian live in homosexual sin or refuse to accept the sex God assigned him or her at birth? Like refuse to accept it. Struggle to accept it? Yes. Refuse to accept it? No. Listen, Mark 8 is the call to follow Jesus for everyone. What we deny and die to varies from person to person. But if anyone wants to follow Jesus, come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's for all of us. So listen, right now in our time, Christian colleges, churches, well-known Christians are caving on this because they fear the opposition and the fallout of holding to Orthodox Christian convictions. Bethel, 
This is work we have to do. Both the work of we need to love better the LGBTQ community in Wilmington and beyond because they are sinners just like us in need of a savior. And the work of we can't capitulate or cave in the fear of pressure work. Both those works are worthy works and needful. So the world, we can't judge the world. Back to that 1 Corinthians 5 passage with that gross immorality situation that Paul was saying that they had to deal with. He said, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Implied answer, nothing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes. That is our jurisdiction. God judges those outside. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. So, again, if someone would, like this guy sleeping with his stepmother, and nobody's doing anything. So that needs to be dealt with. That was, that was the point. Okay? So, the world, in, it can, it will do whatever it wants. We can't dictate or determine what's done in the city of man. But we can and we must work diligently on the faithfulness of the city of God to be the loving, wise, and for our good word of God, like trusting the good word of God that's for our good, no matter how much it cuts against the grain of our own flesh and desires or cuts against the grain of the cultural winds that blow. So, opposition came, point number two. Point number three, how did Nehemiah respond to this opposition with prayer. When Sambalot and Tobiah trash talk him, to trash talk the, the folks in, in Jerusalem in 1 to 3, 4, 1 to 3, what does Nehemiah do in response? Did he just give it right back to him, good old New Jersey tongue lashing? If you're from New Jersey, I don't know, some, somehow you get like a special gift um, <laughs> at birth from being, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I like New, okay, anyway. Um, they're good at that. So did he, like in his pride and his anger, did it drive him to scramble all the harder and say, we're going to show you, we're going to stick it to you? No. He prayed. He asked for God to take up their cause and deal with their enemies. So look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Whoa. Is that how you pray? How do we understand this prayer? Maybe you've heard this kind of prayer. It's called an imprecatory prayer. It's like praying judgment down on somebody else. Like, ugh. Is that okay? I mean, love your enemies. Like, how does this... But you find these in the Psalms... You don't have to go far. Psalm 5, 10. Psalm 5, verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So is this like God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Is it contradictory to call to love your neighbor? Call us to love our neighbors, and including our enemies, and then this? No. Let's just... Stop and notice what is actually happening here. First off, this is actually meekness. Meekness on its knees. It's not taking matters into your own hands. 
It's not strapping on the sword. Psalm 37 has a lot of those themes. The meek shall inherit the earth. This is trusting in the Lord with all your heart. You're asking God, the judge, to deal with your enemies. It's believing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not mine. Not mine to take. So you're leaving it in the Lord's hands and entrusting it to him. Not retaliating. Or in this case, maybe joining in on the trash talking. So this is also in line with God's justice. So if they continue to oppose God's work, if they oppress and persecute the people of God and threaten and kill, if they insist on plotting and doing evil, then God deal with them. Have their wickedness backfire on them. May they receive what they want to mete out on others, like Haman and Esther, remember? He made this gallows for Mordecai because it drove him crazy that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And then who ended up hanged on those gallows? That's poetic justice. He was wickedly trying to oppress and kill Mordecai, and it turned back on his own head. And we see that as just. Or you could say it this way, and I don't mean this flippantly. This is language the Bible uses, both in Psalm 37 and in Psalm 2. The wicked deride and taunt, but it's God who gets the last laugh. So listen, we should pray for our enemies. We should pray for God to have mercy on them. Because guess what? We were enemies, right? By nature, we're all enemies of God in our sin. And only if he mercifully brings us to our senses so that we lay down our arms and repent I don't want to fight God. Like, that's a losing battle. I, I, I need amnesty. I need pardon and forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation. Help me. Thank you that Jesus offers that and I can trust him and be reconciled to God and have peace with him. So we should pray for our enemies, pray that God has mercy on them, but we can also pray for justice to be served. If you were a Christian in North Korea, could you pray that God would take Kim Jong-un down? I pray that. Is that because I don't want him to repent and believe the gospel? No, I pray for that too. But if not, his continued, you know, staying in power means the oppression and just wickedness on so many people or the Uyghurs in China. So, when real people are hurting real people, it is merciful for them to be stopped. So we can pray like this. So when the opposition escalated to, to plans to come and fight, remember that first it was trash talking, then it was plans to come and fight, we see Nehemiah and the people respond again with prayer in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So we see a pattern emerging. We're going to see it over and over again in Nehemiah. A pattern of prayer and action. Dependence on God and action. Not either or, but both and. Over and over again. So point number four, and this point will be quick, planning and action. As we've seen already, Nehemiah is a man of action. And oftentimes... People of action, men and women, are not necessarily strong in prayer. And sometimes the prayer people are not so strong in action. 
But this, Nehemiah, is an example for us that we might become people of prayer and action. Both and. Over and over again, threats and obstacles arise here in this book. Nehemiah prays, makes wise plans, and then acts. So we see the beautiful interplay of the sovereignty of God and wise human responsibility. The prayer and action combination that you see in the early part of chapter 4 is paralleled with the trust and action parallel or, or combination in the latter half. So after verse 9, prayer isn't mentioned, but in verse 15 it says God frustrated their plan. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. So it was prayer and action, prayer and action, and then it's trust and action, trust and action. So their faith doesn't lead them to sit idle, but their wise actions are not done in some take matters into my own hands sort of way. It's faith and action and action. Prayer and action, prayer and action. We need both. We need to be strong in both. Lord, make us strong in both here at Bethel. Amen? Anybody? Amen. Finally, fifth and finally, motivation. So, um, despite the taunts of the enemies, the people had a mind to work. 4-6, God was at work, so his people were getting to work. But as often happens, it got hard. So look at verse 10 to 12. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Then verse 12, at that, the, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So the zeal and morale seems to be waning. Verse 10, people are getting weary, overwhelmed, which that's just as much a threat as the threats from outside. Enemies are threatening, verse 11. Verse 12, um, it's probably one of two things. Either the, there's intel being given to the people inside the wall so that they're ready, or it's possible that this return to us thing could be those, you know, all the people, most of the people were, were living in towns out and about, and in order to get all the work done, these people needed to come in to help. So they weren't home. So it's like, enough already. Come home. It's too dangerous. We need you. So either way, it's a challenge. And these obstacles um, are in need of addressing. And so Nehemiah, I mean, we can have the same things happen to us, right? The work seems too great. It's too much. It's never going to happen, you know. So how did Nehemiah lead the people through these challenges? Look at verse 14. And, oh my goodness, sorry, I will hurry up here. <laughs> I didn't realize what time it was. So 4.14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah exhorted them to remember their God and to remember what they were fighting for. That's a pretty helpful reminder. May we remember those reminders. Remember your God and remember who and what you're fighting for. In the face of all the obstacles and the threats and the weariness and feeling overwhelmed. Wait, God is in the equation still, right? Like when it's hard, isn't God still in the equation? Remember him. He's the God of Romans 8 that we've looked at in recent weeks here. And the church is still his work, right? Jesus his promise is still going to hold, right? I will build my church. So if we are in Christ, God is for us, not against us. 
Remember your God. And remember who and what you fight for, who and what you're building for. The good of the church is the good of your family, your brothers, your sisters, and future generations. The vertical motivation, the horizontal motivation, both and, not either or. So let's take up the full armor of God and fight the good fight of the faith in the strength that God supplies. So is Psalm 127 a demotivator to building and protecting work? No. How does the Lord build and protect his people? Sometimes he does it just kind of like miraculously, right? But most of the time, how does the Lord build and protect his people? Through his God-remembering, God-dependent, God-empowered and active people. We are how God answers our prayers as each one of us does our work. Your part matters, your life matters, your contribution matters. Listen, there's all kinds of reasons for hope and motivation. Remember your God. We follow a master who turned a Lunchable into a meal for thousands. Y'all know what a Lunchable is? It's like a little plastic, okay, a little bit of food. All right, so remember and act. We're going to sing Be Still My Soul to close here, um, which again, Psalm 46, again, those themes, we've already sung them. We're going to sing them again. So we're going to sing Psalm 46 right now. And then we are actually going to close with a commissioning of Chris Elliott as an elder here at Bethel. So let's pray and sing. God, we thank you that you are the great worker in the universe. You are not aloof and just off in some distant galaxy, indifferent to our plight. You are at work. You did the great work through Jesus, and you are at work in our lives and in our church now. Help us to remember you, who you are, how good and how great and how willing you are to be with and help your people. And may we remember what we're fighting for, what we're building for, and do the work in the strength that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen.